Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. This is the podcast brought to you by New Mexico PBS. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, an executive producer here. Excited to bring you this week's show, a little different than the usual fare for starters. No line opinion panel this week. We just had a lot of other stuff we wanted to bring to you, and we're going to start off with a less serious piece, a serious topic, but uh, an unusual, lighthearted approach to it. Uh, It's a really great piece, and we encourage you to head to our YouTube or Facebook pages, even Instagram to actually watch this because it's very visual as well. But it comes out of our Our Land environmental project with correspondent Laura Paskus, and it is a feature on the group Conservation Carnival. Don't know if you've heard of them or not, but this is a theater troupe that goes out and about around town, especially in the Bosque, in a cool-looking van. And they have costumes and teach uh, young people especially about conservation efforts and about the wildlife and plant life and the ecosystem of the Albuquerque Bosque. And so you're going to get introduced to some characters here. We've got uh, a silvery minnow you're going to hear from, and we've got Abuela, the cottonwood, as well as Prudence, the porcupine. So just a great effort here and a really entertaining piece, the work they do, the creativity they put behind it. And so we wanted to bring that to you here. And again, encourage to go get that uh, visual element of this story as well. Big shout out to the production team responsible for this one. Of course, producer Laura Paskus. And our photographer was Anthony Lostetter, who's also our production manager here at New Mexico PBS. And a great job of editing by Kevin Maestas. Um, And so we hope you enjoy it. And uh, we'll spread the word for others to go check it out as well. So here is the story of Conservation Carnival. We all know... The climate is changing. Our beautiful Rio Grande is affected, and so are the creatures who live in the river and the forest alongside it. Talking about these challenges, it is hard, but finding new and different ways of communicating about the environment while celebrating it and having fun, that is right up Indian Schechtel's alley. She's the ringleader of Conservation Carnival, which performs in the Bosque and also includes a van outfitted for environmental education. We joined her and a few of her friends in the Bosque. Here's their story. Ever since I was a kid, I was just always fascinated with carnival, traveling circus, sideshow, freak show, folklore, and the entire history. And during the Great Depression, it was the only way people could, a lot of people could make money and be in showtime unless you're wealthy on the radio or something like that. And it gave a lot of people a lot of opportunity just to be fed and employed and people who would be outcasted a chance to shine. And it's just, just the whole aesthetic of it, I just thought was so cool. And I've always thought that. And some, even through getting my biology degree and traveling and trying to do environmental activism, I've always just gravitated towards it. Break the fish! I'm break the fish! And I'm a real grand silver minnow. I'm stranded on the bank of the Rio. 
marine silver minnows are endangered species. We need slow moving back channels in the forest to make our babies. And that doesn't happen anymore because the river isn't flooding the forest. Because you humans are using too much water. Help drink the fish. Use less water. The Conservation Carnival is a science circus. Um, we bring the bosque to the public to teach about environmental education. We, we celebrate the bosque ecosystem and we teach water conservation as well through circus arts and performing arts. We've been taking people out into the woods and having them interact with characters from the ecosystem. So we have abuela cottonwood tree, porcupine, and I don't want to say all the names because it's supposed to be a surprise when you're out there. Oh, horsetail grass. You have been around since the dinosaurs, my friend. You're almost as old as abuela here. Oh, oh good. What a beautiful day in the bosque. What a beautiful day in the bosque. And actually, I have a friend here. Wake up, Prudence! Oh! Prudence! Oh, dear! Oh! Oh, oh dear, hello, Abuelita! Hello! You are this? Hello, you oh, are there! I was sleeping, you know, I prefer to nap during most of the day. Yes, you see, Prudence here is a porcupine, my friend. She is a corpuscular being. She sleeps a lot during the day. She does, and she lives on us cottonwood trees. And you eat us too, don't you, That's Prudence? That's true. Prudence. It's true. Uh, I don't know if you've ever tried it, but this is delicious. This mm. is called cambium, and it grows right under the bark of the tree. And we porcupines just chew and chew on the cambium. It's delicious. We have very sharp teeth, you see. This is my Uncle Peter and he's no longer with us. May you rest in pieces, Peter. But you can see his long teeth were cutting through that bark and, and getting to the cambium. That's where we get our nutrients, you see. And yes, we also feel very safe up in the cottonwood trees. Yes, let's talk about that instead of the eating us part. Oh, yes. We keep well, you safe, don't we? Yes, oh. we are very good climbers, you know. We like to climb high up in the trees so we are safe from the predators. When we have a boil of cottonwood tree out, kids will ask, uh, does it hurt when a woodpecker pecks you? So they actually like really dive in that she is a creature here. That's always really cool because they're, they're not questioning that someone's in costume or anything. They're actually interacting and looking at trees differently again and realizing they're a part of a system, right? Building out this van has been a cure in a lot of ways for my climate anxiety and my depression about it. And creating and finding a community that reacts and wants to be a part of it and perform or just come has been really soothing because yeah, it is daunting. It's heavy. 
So if you can be silly with it in any sort of way, why not be healing in any sort of way? If we can spend some time at events or just getting together for these Bosky theaters and celebrate what we have instead of keep talking about how it was and how we need to change it and and just say like, hey, I like that tree. <laughs> you know? Or like, wow, I love drinking water. It, it helps, it really does. And I speak, I speak from personal experience with that because I, I was diagnosed with climate anxiety pretty, pretty heavily. And this was my therapy for it. So I'm inviting anyone to come be goofy and be a carny <laughs> to, come, to come bring some levity, yeah. We recently did a Facebook Live with Our Land on another environmental topic with Laura Paskus, and that is a lawsuit. You might have read about this from several environmental groups compelling the government to turn over records as part of a Freedom of Information Act open records request uh, from those environmental groups seeking information about the federal oil and gas lease program with the federal government. And this all stems from an executive order almost right out of the gate from President Biden about these oil and gas leases on public lands. And uh, the environmental groups want to know exactly what's going on with all of that and the information hard to come by. You hear, as journalists, we talk about IPRA, that's the Open Records, or FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act. You hear us talk about that all the time. It's that way not just the media, but any citizen has to hold their elected officials accountable. Uh, this information belongs to us, the public, and so this is the avenue to get that. But it is a difficult uh, project and a difficult undertaking, it seems, always in terms of how quickly information is released, how much is redacted or kept secret. And so Laura caught up with um, a representative from the Western Environmentalist Law, Environmental Law Center to find out more about this. That's Barbara Chilcott. And so wanted to bring that conversation to you here now as well. Hi, everyone. I'm here this morning with Barbara Chilcott. She's a senior attorney with the Western Environmental Law Center, and we're going to talk about why conservation groups are suing the U.S. Department of the Interior over documents related to a 2021 report about the federal oil and gas leasing program. Barbara, welcome, and thanks for joining me this morning. Good morning. Thanks, Laura. Good to be here. So I was wondering, can we just start with this 2021 um, Interior Department report. Can you talk about how that came about and, and what's in that report? Sure. So in November of 2021, the Department of Interior released a report um, that's called Report on the Federal Oil and Gas Leasing Program Prepared in Response to Executive Order 14008. So that tells you everything you need to know, right? <laughs> um, Basically, the background with this report is um, early in President Biden's administration in January of last year, he um, issued uh, several executive orders um, related to climate change. This one, Executive Order 14008, is called Tackling the Climate Crisis at Home and Abroad. 
So in that order, President Biden acknowledged that we have a narrow moment to avoid the most catastrophic impacts of the climate crisis, and that responding to the climate crisis will require both significant short-term global reductions in greenhouse gas emissions and net zero emissions by 2050. The president also um, heralded this all-of-government approach that reduces climate pollution, increases resilience um, on the impacts of climate change, um, conserves our land and waters, protects biodiversity, and several other lofty goals. Um, most relevant to this issue is that the order also ordered the Department of Interior to complete a quote, comprehensive review and reconsideration of its federal oil and gas program. Um, and in doing so, it required the Secretary of Interior to use her broad stewardship um, responsibilities over public lands to look at um, potential impacts of the federal oil and gas program on climate um, and then take appropriate action to account for climate costs. So this report issued by Department of Interior the day after Thanksgiving um, on Black Friday last year really um, was they, the expectation was that the report would be this comprehensive review. Um, really what it was though, um, it's a really a 12 page report um, that provides concrete recommendations for um, fiscal reforms mostly, um, including like royalties and bidding requirements, bonding requirements for oil and gas, for the oil and gas industry. Um, and so that's what the report is. Um, and our concern was that it really um, left out the a discussion on climate at all. Just to mention, there is a long history of administrations who like to put out reports on Black Friday, hoping that <laughs> journalists won't cover them and that the public doesn't notice them too much. Um, I know that climate assessment came out on Black Friday a few years ago as well. Um, so you so you looked at this report and and I'm guessing conservation groups thought, okay, well, there's a whole bunch of stuff missing that's supposed to be in there. And you um, filed a Freedom of Information Act request. What were you trying to, what were you hoping to get from that request and what did you get? I guess, yeah, so back, so by way of background, the reason, um, we were, you know, it, this report was highly anticipated is because the Department of Interior is in charge of federal oil and gas leasing on public lands, um, which produces greenhouse gas emissions, um, which are the root cause of global warming. Um, and then to reverse climate change, uh, we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, the federal oil and gas program accounts for 25% of oil and gas, uh, of fossil fuel greenhouse gas emissions in the country. And so it's a really big um, con contri contributor to, um, to the U.S.'s contribution to global warming. Um, and so we filed on behalf of um, three conservation groups, the Montana Environmental Information Center, Wild Earth Guardians, and the Center for Biological Diversity, we filed a Freedom of Information Act request with four agencies, um, the Secretary of Interior's office, the Solicitor's office in Interior, the Bureau of Land Management, and the Bureau of Ocean um, Energy Management, um, really seeking to understand why there was such a disconnect between the 
um, President Biden's executive order that really did um, acknowledge and, um, and, and require response to the climate crisis on the one hand, and then on the other hand, Interior's report, which really failed to mention climate at all. And so the point of our request is to um, really understand um, through the Freedom of Information Act what the government is thinking. And so we um, asked for documents related to the preparation of the report, um, communications, drafts, um, things of that nature. Um, so far, we've received responses only from one agency, the Bureau of Ocean and um, Energy Management. And those responses were heavily redacted and most of the documents were withheld. And so um, given that we, um, and then given the lack of response from the other agencies, we decided to go ahead and file the lawsuit to see if a court would help us compel or would compel the, the agencies to respond. So, and just a reminder to people um, listening, the Freedom of Information Act is like, it's not an optional thing for agencies to respond to. And anyone, you don't have to be an attorney or a reporter to file a Freedom of Information Act request. It is supposed to be, um, you know, to help people understand the workings of government um, and, and to increase transparency. And so I, I guess, you know, as a reporter, we always have problems with the Freedom of Information Act. Um, Oftentimes requests, agencies will take years and years to respond to requests. Um, were you surprised that the Biden administration, you know, which has, you know, talked about transparency and climate change and these things, were you surprised that you didn't get what you were seeking um, or, or get that yet? No, I mean, we, yes, we are surprised given, you know, how urgent this um, need to respond to the climate crisis is. And so the reason we um, have proceeded so diligently to collect this information is we really want to know if this administration is going to live up to its promises and what we can expect going forward. And so, yes, um, we were surprised, especially um, by just the lack of communication from the agencies and um, in trying to work with us at all. So um, that kind of spoke volumes to us in terms of uh, the need for us to take the next step and um, seek judicial inter intervention. And so what happens next or what could happen next with the lawsuit? So the um, so we filed our lawsuit last week, and the the government has thirty days to respond um, by filing an answer in district court. Um, after that, I you know I it's uncertain. I, I really hope that it will um, serve as a catalyst for the agencies to you know start responding and and you know get in touch with us about um, you know, what we can expect in terms of timing and, um, you know, what they intend to produce. So it's really kind of up in the air at the moment. Um, and the timing is uncertain. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm curious, it's, it's, you know, it's one thing to issue an executive order, particularly at the sort of toward the beginning of someone's presidency, when clearly climate change is an important issue to lots of people. Um, you know, kind of how do you think 
is this sort of a bellwether for how seriously the Biden administration across its agencies are going to take climate change? Like, it's one thing to issue an executive order. It's another to really carry it out. And that's exactly right. And and that's our concern, frankly, is that um, there there we were so excited early on in the administration um, on the the. Um, you know, actions that were promised to address climate change. And so I, you know, we hope this isn't a bellwether. Um, we really do hope that the administration will kind of get its feet under it again and, you know, be brave and move forward with um, doing what needs to be done to um, respond to the moment at hand. Um, it, it, yeah, that, that's our hope for sure. And so oil and gas is all over the news right now um, because of what's happening between Russia and Ukraine. I'm curious what you think Americans need to really keep in mind when it comes to oil and gas leasing and the process of leasing and kind of, um, you know, the availability of oil and gas on the market and, and the timing of leases. Right. And, I, you know, I think what we're hearing in the news right now is just this need to um, to open up more lands to new leases and um, just, you know, just kind of let it, let the market take over and let it just be a free for all. But the problem really with that is that, you know, new leases take years and years to, um, to develop. And um, really the, the kind of the false narrative that's been spun by, you know, the industry and, and some on the um, political side is, is really that, uh, the, our only hope is to, you know, increase production of fossil fuels um, and increase production at home, where really that is um, the opposite is true, where the more we um, lock in our reliance on fossil fuels, the, the more we're dependent on these geopolitical crises and, um, it, and the more we harm our planet going forward. And so I, you know, I think the public really should pay close attention to any messages coming out um, that say, you know, our only hope is to, to, to sell more oil and gas leases because that's just not the case. Right. And we just keep seeing time and time again, and with increased urgency, the, the last two IPCC reports that came out really emphasized the, the connection between oil and gas and greenhouse gas emissions and the need to cut emissions to zero. Do you see the Biden administration moving in that direction? Well, not at the moment. And I'm sorry, I think my camera just froze. So I apologize. I'm trying to restart it. But no, not at the moment. It, um, it, the steps being taken by the Biden administration really do seem to be moving uh, not in that direction to go to, um, to, you know, in fossil fuel development on public lands or to get to net zero by 2050, which really is the, um, you know, the intent of the, the United States' position in the Paris Agreement where all nations have uh, that are part of that agreement have um, committed to uh, holding global warming to two degrees Celsius and um, making efforts to limit it to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So um, the actions taken by the administration now certainly aren't moving us in that direction. Well, thanks, Barbara. I appreciate it. And um, we'll definitely check back to see what happens with the lawsuit and what you find out in the documents you hopefully get. Great. Thanks so much, Laura. Thanks, Barbara. Bye-bye.
We're always looking for new ideas for our Facebook Lives, topics you are interested in learning more about. We love it when you send in questions. We like to incorporate those in as well. We try to do those weekly, not only for our land, but also New Mexico in focus, working on uh, a couple potentially right now about this report that came out last week that ranked the uh, Albuquerque Zoo and the Biopark as one of the worst in terms of uh, specifically the elephant enclosure. And so we want to get to the bottom of that, get both sides of that. So be on the lookout for that. And the best way to do that, make sure you follow and like us on Facebook and YouTube. That's where those live conversations happen. And if we get them, we'll bring them to you here on the podcast as well. All right, we're going to wrap up this episode uh, this time around from a repeat of a segment in our show for New Mexico PBS this week. But it's a really interesting one all about the intersection of faith and climate change and how those two intersect and what theologians, at least some of them, uh, are thinking and approaching our changing climate and what our responsibility is to that and to fix the problem as well. So this was originally something we ran during the holidays last year, thought it was an important conversation to bring back to you. It's with theologian Larry Rasmussen, and uh, again, Laura Pascas doing the interviewing here for our land. So let's give that one a listen. I'm Laura Pascas, and like many of you, I think about the impacts of climate change on our state and our communities. And I too feel grief when I see our rivers dry or our forests burn. On this month's episode of Our Land, I spoke with Larry Rasmussen, Professor Emeritus at Union Theological Seminary, about climate change and faith and faith and mourning. On our show, we talk a lot about the science of climate change and cultural issues around climate change. I wanted to talk with you today about where faith fits into climate activism. I mean, someone has said that faith is a citadel uh, perched at the edge of despair. Uh, And I think that that is the case when people are in really rough places whether it's just for themselves personally or in their family or in their community or whether it's a whole nation, even a planet. First of all, I think faith is a kind of way of saying yes to life in spite of everything. I mean, we talk about it that way. Faith is a kind of trust in things that we've not yet seen that they are yet possible. Mm-hmm. And your 2013 book, which... I realize we're um, in 2022 now. Um, But you wrote in this book that as the world has changed, we must learn to sing a new song in a strange land. What is this strange land and and how do we sing a new song? Yeah, good. (laughs) Um, With difficulty. (laughs) The strange land is that we've changed the planet. And what is not in that book, except to be mentioned at the very outset, is that we've actually moved into a different geological epoch. I think it's massive that we've gone from the the Holocene, uh, which relied on a balanced climate, into the Anthropocene epoch. But we'll have to figure out a way 
to manage and adapt uh, civilization if it survives under conditions of climate volatility rather than stability and climate unfriendliness rather than friendliness. So sing, learning to sing a strange, uh, a new song in a strange land then requires certainly creativity, adaptability, resilience, and probably sheer grit. Uh, and it's going to be in the face of suffering on a scale that we have not seen uh, as a result of natural disasters. You shared with me a letter that you wrote to your grandchildren about this coming transition. And you wrote, if the tumultuous world hasn't stopped being beautiful, neither has love stopped being love. Yeah. In this world of huge uncertainty and transitions, what, what does love, what does beauty matter? Yeah, um, a lot. Um, I don't think we find our way except uh, through the kind of relationships that are nurtured by love. Amidst this changing and changed planet, <clears throat> find our way without a sense of wonder, without a sense of being on a journey which is much greater than our little uh, slice of time. As an environment reporter, I have so many people contact me um, talking about or writing about their anxiety and their depression and their grief as yeah. they see, you know, our river dry, our snowpack, you know, our snowpackless mountains um, or mountains after a fire. Are there lessons in the faith community um, to help us deal with these losses? Uh, there are. Um whether and how much we draw upon them will vary a lot from congregation to congregation. Um, in uh, part because we have, especially white folk, have so benefited from the Industrial Revolution and what it brought that we hardly even noticed that burning fossil fuels was destroying the kind of planet uh, that was yielding these benefits. So it's harder for white folk uh, to know the traditions of lament, uh, to know the traditions of living with and through apocalypse, to know the traditions of uh, having to sing a new song in a strange uh, land. So I'm, I'm trying to say not everybody everywhere will be tapping into these. Uh, but now eco-lament is a reality for a lot of people, religious and secular uh, people. And there are traditions of eco-lament. <laughs> um, faith traditions have arisen actually in the face of disaster and have continued to address uh, disaster. Just as a family has to come together, they don't always do, but just as they have to come together in the face of tragedy uh, in the family, so faith traditions have done that over and over and over again in the face of tragedy and, 
and despair and reasons for lament and anxiety about uh, the future. So I, I think you take old uh, experiences, texts, communities that may, it's counterintuitive that in a, a no analog world you'd be looking to ancient, for ancient wisdom. But anything, uh, you know, any human communities that have been around for millennia, like faith communities have, has accumulated a lot of wisdom. It needs to be revised, it needs to be adapted, uh, something new needs to be uh, created in all likelihood. <clears throat> but the resources are there, the experiences are there. You also write in your 2013 book, or you ask, where do we turn when we discover that the religion we have lived by since the industrial technological era emerged, eternal and exponential economic growth, is an illusion, dogma masquerading as common sense and kept alive by willpower and little else. I wanna talk about that. And I also wanna talk about the role that white supremacy has played in faith and in causing climate change yeah. and where those intersect and how we pull them apart for yeah. a, a, a different world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let me start with the latter point. Um, climate change is a result of the institutions that uh, arose out of the Industrial Revolution and that went global by way of conquest <clears throat> and colonization. And given the Industrial Revolution, the form that that took was one uh, which now has brought us to climate system change, changing the systems, planetary systems themselves. And it is we who are white who are most deeply immersed in what we benefited from that. One thing that's happening in theology is a kind of decolonization of theology that has been white and in a universal voice. <laughs> so you get black theology, you get feminist theology, you get uh, Latinx and, uh, theology, you get womanist theology out of the African-American experience, you get queer theology, and that kind of decolonization has to happen uh, because of the power of white institutions in forging the modern world. Um, so uh, undoing white privilege, undoing white supremacy is essential to uh, making the transition to a sustainable uh, life uh, on other terms. Uh, than, than that. Um, and that's, that's massive. 
Well, thank you, Larry, for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. And we want to give you a heads up about our companion podcast. You've heard us talk about this before, but talking about Growing Forward that we do in collaboration with New Mexico Political Report and Megan Kamrick. They are the co-host. Megan is with KUNM. Andy Lyman's with New Mexico Political Report. And we recently kicked off season four. And as you well know, Friday was the start of legal sales for recreational use cannabis in New Mexico. Long time coming, been years in the making. And of course, the Cannabis Regulation Act was passed in a special session in 2021 with an aggressive timeline to get to the point of legal recreational sales. And so the team was out and about on April 1st, April Fool's Day, funny enough. And they talked to a lot of folks, caught up with the governor, caught up with the Cannabis Control Division to see how things are going. And so that is coming out either Monday or first thing Tuesday morning. So make sure you're subscribed to Growing Forward. So that's right there waiting for you. Going to be a lot of great information. And uh, we want to make sure you were aware of that. And then new episodes come out every other Tuesday of Growing Forward. So with that, we'll wrap it up for this week. But we thank you so much for subscribing, for tuning in, taking us with you wherever you go this weekend. We hope you all have a fantastic weekend. And as always, thanks for listening.